0: Our heads, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege, this fantastic honor of gathering together in the unity of the faith, Father. A unity that describes you in heaven. Thank you for giving and partaking, allowing us to partake in this unity that is yours to bestow in time, even to whatever degree humanly possible what a privilege this is father thank you for bestowing on us as well these relationships that we have in this local assembly this family that we have this tight-knit group that continues to march on in the face of adversity we know that you have placed us in an area of the country and the world even that is antagonistic to truth and so we understand and we're continuing to learn of the responsibility that we have as a ministry to our great shepherd as we bring the gospel out to a lost and dying world, Father, that just seems to be waltzing right away from you. We thank you, though, Father, for encouraging us through your Spirit's ministry and knowing that Even if we sow the good seed, we have no control whatsoever over the soil. Thank you for reminding us of that simple fact, Father. But even so, thank you for reminding us that we do have a commission on our lives, that we have a real purpose, that every one of us matters, that you've created us uniquely, but yet part of one body. May we never forget these simple things. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. This evening's message title is Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? Part 4. Um, and this is the introduction, if you would. I want to begin this way with some perspective. Um, I was talking to someone about this this past week, and most of you who have been alive for any period of time that have been studying the Word of God for any period of time understand the sentiment in the title up here on this slide that everything's backwards and upside down. Everything's backwards and upside down. What do I mean? The things that the world esteems the most are often the same things that are potential handicaps in the spiritual life. Things like intellect, athleticism, I think of professional sports, beauty, strength and power, uh, business acumen even, shrewdness, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the list goes on and on. These are all things that the world esteems very highly. That if you have even, um, if, you, if you have a superlative, so to speak, in any one of these categories and many more up on the board, um, the world's going to esteem you based on that thing. And the problem with that is that your self-esteem, you're trained at an early age to tie your self-esteem to these things and then it just develops, it snowballs from there. And then you end up with an entire society that agrees upon the ridiculousness of esteeming such things. And so everything ends up backwards and upside down. And so the things that the world esteems the most are often the same things that are potential handicaps in the spiritual life. It's hard for the intellect to let go of that posture in the world, to be humbled. It's hard for the idol, athlete, to not believe so highly in themselves. It's hard for the beautiful lady to let it go. Um, these are all things that end up working against us. They don't preclude us. We can't make doctrines to say stupid stuff like if you're smart, you're going to not be saved. That's foolishness. But we do recognize, even in Scripture, that certain categories of things that are esteemed in the world are handicaps, in many ways. It all depends on perspective. So this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 25-31, harkens, we're going to get to it in a moment, harkens all the way back to Jesus' selection of the twelve apostles. Go there. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 25. And it really does echo all the way back to when Jesus was choosing the 12 original apostles and this is what we've been sort of learning 1 Corinthians 125 because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for consider your calling brethren now because he uses brethren he's talking to believers Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Those were three words that, if I was teaching back then, might have been in our list on the board, instead of intellect, beauty, these kind of things, athleticism. Not that those things weren't, but this is the chosen language of Paul. According to the flesh, wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, to despise. and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord you see that just puts everything on its ear doesn't it everything is backwards and upside down in this world and if you ever forget that you need to remind yourself of it because it's really really easy i think scott talked about this on tuesday it's really, really easy to fall prey to your own norms and standards. And it's really, really easy for your norms and standards to be set and then matured even by the world. It's just an influence thing. Before you know it, you thought you were standing here. It's like the, uh, the undertow example. You thought you were swimming in place, but before you know it, you're way out to sea. And you didn't even know that there was an undercurrent. That's the way it is. If we don't constantly examine ourselves, constantly remind ourselves of what we go into each day, which is the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. And the world has influence over us. And if we don't remind ourselves of these things, the next thing we know, we can be out waiting around, not realizing how far we've strayed from shore. So the following came up on Tuesday's message regarding the apostles May we each be encouraged, or we may each be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Each one of them were justified, made righteous by faith, not as a result of intellect. And that's a big point that you have to remember. We talked about justification uh, in bits and pieces not so long ago. But justification simply means to be made righteous. The gavel come down, remember, it's by uh, grace through faith, so to speak. We may be encouraged uh, uniquely by the apostles. Each of them were justified, made righteous by faith, not as a result of intellect. Every conversation I've had with folks since the start of this new series has has revealed something different to them. This is the beauty of studying the apostles. This is the beauty of not accepting the backwards norms of the world. That's the beauty of looking at the apostles, that we do not accept the norms of the world that we live in. Because if we do, you know what we'll do? We'll make big 50-foot statues of Peter out front and Paul, because that will be our norm and standard, you see? And we'll be looking to elevate, and then I'll ask TJ to start slowly elevating this pulpit, right, until my head hits the ceiling. And then I can just look down at you, you right. <laughs> and that would be the way it would go. And that would be perfectly okay. Uh, and by the way, that's what makes a lot of churches attractive to the world. Seriously. Think about that. So just remember those things. I'm just sharing some thoughts that I had. A little bit off topic, but edifying. Remember this as we press on in our studies. Why are the apostles so encouraging? So just changing gears a little bit, uh, as a lead into this new series, we noted the drastic change in the teaching ministry of Jesus. How did we end up with the apostles, in other words? Primarily that he spoke openly and matter-of-factly about the gospel to his own people, the Jews, which, of course, included the apostles. We say uh, loosely that the first half of his ministry was uh... propositional in other words a direct presentation of facts that's what he did the first quote-unquote half of his ministry was what we would call theologically propositional proposition just means here's the proposition there's no mistaking this is Burt's B's lip balm. that's what he would say that's what it means to be propositional just stating clear facts that was the front half of the first part of his ministry But as scripture reveals, when he did that, his own did not receive him. God promised the Jews a Messiah. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. This man clearly introduced himself through word and deed, miracles, what have you, and they rejected him. Once their rejection was consummated, Jesus' teaching changed from propositional to parable. It was this pivotal point in Jesus' teaching ministry that got us thinking about the parables. However, before simply jumping right into the parables, the Spirit cautioned us to take the time, however long it takes, we're not going to rush here, however long it takes, so that we can garner the context of the parables. The context is key. The basic context is relatively simple, as we'll see. First, we have the Messiah who described his own ministry this way. These are his words, remember, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. That's how he described his own ministry. If Jesus was saved, he'd say, I came to seek and to save. And then I commissioned my apostles, I trained them up, so that they could do what? Seek and save. That's what I commissioned them to do. So simply stated, Jesus came to spread the good news about salvation. Now, before he ascended into heaven for good, he trained up those who would take the mantle of the gospel and spread it out. That's what he did. That's what he did. He likened them to the parable of parables to, or in the parable of parables, to sowers sowing seed in a field which would have made perfect sense to an agricultural uh, culture. So they were sowers sowing seed in a field. In other words, he was teaching them in parable form what it would be like to sow his seed, his gospel, because he was going to be gone in less than a year and a half from when he started teaching parables. So he was teaching them what it would be like, what to expect, when you take the gospel out to a world to the world what are you going to run into well you're going to run into a variety of what he called soils hearts as we'll learn now in context right before he began teaching in said parables lies the great turn of events this is the so-called consummation of Jewish rejection go to Matthew 12:31 Matthew 12.31, so right before he started teaching the parables, all in the same day, remember? So the context is very clear, if you're willing to receive it. The context is very clear. It's all in the same day. Matthew 12.31, in review, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven what was the blasphemy? The Pharisees refused to believe that He was the Messiah, that He was the Savior, that He really did come to seek and to save. So up here on the board, what we've been learning is this, blasphemy against the Spirit. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was, knowing He was sent from their God. Think about that. They knew who He was, John eleven forty eight Acts four sixteen which means they'd have to call the Spirit who convicted them of who He was a liar. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. They knew who He was. They were convicted, not even on His own words, by the Spirit's special ministry. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, says the Lord God. The same Lord God is the same Spirit. There are only one God. He would be saying the same thing. This is Him. Like Jesus said, if you don't believe I'm Him, you will die in your sins. We learned that on Sunday. This is what blasphemy of the Spirit means. It's not even that they were saying, hey, Jesus and your humanity, you're a liar. I don't believe you. They were saying that the the Spirit was a liar. That the very height of conviction, supernatural conviction, was a lie. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus said. So you can call me a liar, but you can't call God, the Spirit, a liar. So here's one of those verses. Um, hold your thumb where you're at. Go to John eleven forty-eight. We just see a little bit of their um, motivation, if you would. These Pharisees who actually knew who he was, who had to be convicted the Lord's never going to sentence anyone to the lake of fire unless they've been convicted of the gospel. It would be unjust. We see a little bit of their attitude. John 11:48. 48. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Seriously? What were they worried about? They were worried about their position in society. You see, everything was backwards for them too. There's a lot of people who I believe, just like the parables say, won't be saved because they're unwilling to give up their position in life. They know who God is. They know who Jesus Christ is. But they will suppress Him actively, as we've read in Romans 1, for their entire lives because they're not willing, they're too arrogant to even consider themselves sinners in need of a Savior. It's incredible. It's incredible. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Wrong motivation. It's hard to imagine for we believers, knowing the Lord God the way we do, but these people, and technically, think about this, all of those in hell rejected what they knew to be true about him. You have to think that way. Everybody has to say or reject God the Holy Spirit's convicting ministry regarding the gospel. Or else God would be unjust. Everybody that's in hell has to have made a decision about it. That's a sobering fact, isn't it? It's very sobering to realize that no one will ever go to hell that didn't decide for themselves against God. It's very sobering. It's hard to believe. But that's the strength of arrogance. What Jesus was saying then in context to the Pharisees regarding the blasphemy of the Spirit was that they weren't speaking against His humanity so much as they were speaking fully knowing against the very Spirit of God. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. They're speaking against the very Spirit of God. What he was saying was that you could get away with calling the humanity even. You could say it to Jesus' face, you're a liar, and that would be forgiven. But you cannot get away with calling God, the Spirit, a liar. So, how do we relate to that today? Blasphemy of the Spirit today. Similarly, when an unbeliever says to an evangelist's face, you're a liar. It is forgiven them. But if that evangelist just sowed the good seed, as in the sower in the soils, Matthew 13, 3-4, the unbeliever is now accountable to God for rejecting his spirit, a.k.a. the spirit of Christ in Romans 8:9. That's what it's like today. Anybody, You can go up to somebody and they'll tell you the gospel, you're a liar, you're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. But if you sow that seed the way you're supposed to sow that seed, and God the Holy Spirit convicts them of the gospel, they're accountable to Him now. Up here on the board, 1 Thessalonians 4.8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. In other words, don't get too down like I have obviously, at points, with people rejecting the gospel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Him. Now, I need you to concentrate for a moment because I'm going to tie this back to where we've been over the last year and a half. This whole idea of blasphemy of the Spirit and the the nature of calling God the Holy Spirit a liar, it gets at the very core of the gospel message that we spent over a year on. Up here on the board sowing seed, facts about Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection, whether believed or not, are not the issue in salvation, strictly speaking. Let me explain. The issue is a person's heart response to the gospel, which it does include these facts, as a result of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. A person is never saved based on facts, in other words. A person is based on their response to the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Sure, the facts have to be present, but a person actually has to say yes to the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. They can tell the fact giver they're a liar to their face, and that might be forgiven them. But if they're convicted by God the Holy Spirit and they end up going this way for the rest of their life, nope, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. God is just in sentencing them to the lake of fire, because they have said in their heart, no. As Holy Scripture has taught us, there are different types of belief in the Bible, even concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who believe spuriously for a time, but aren't saved. There are those who believe forevermore who are saved because they have been justified by grace through faith. If the Bible has taught us one thing over the last year and a half or so, it's that it's impossible for a person to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive saving faith, and then abandon that faith. It's impossible. Because you know why? God never fails. He's not going to unchange a changed person, you see. And a changed person bears fruit. So says the Word of God. Not Pastor Ed, not Scott Grande, the Word of God. So it's impossible for a person to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive saving faith, and then abandon that faith. That would imply that God's saving faith could somehow fail, which is blasphemous as well. Running up against the doctrine of eternal security even. Now, if you've got the mental stamina to think about such things, I invite you to do so. We're not going to spend too much more time on it. Let's get back to our previous point. Are you in Matthew 12, 31? All right, go there. Matthew 12, 31. I just wanted to tie that back to the previous year and a half of studies. It's all related, of course. Remember, we were more like the propositional format in the last year and a half, which is the way Jesus was presenting the gospel to the Jews. Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Up here on the board again, the Pharisees knew who Jesus was, knowing He was sent from their God, which means they'd have to call the Spirit who convicted them of who He was a liar. And Jesus said, that's blasphemy against the Spirit. And that's the one sin that's not forgiven. I was given... uh, or giving this some thought today about how the creatures are essentially just think about this for a moment i was just thinking about how a how, listen he's the potter we're the clay right he's the creator we're the creatures we wouldn't exist without him right i mean everything we are everything we owe to life itself is from our creator And I was thinking about how the creatures and their arrogance, it's so ridiculous, essentially are saying, I want to be emancipated from my creator. Right? They're like, yeah, I know who you are, but I reject you. I don't submit to you. I don't want to submit to you. I'm arrogant. So they really, in a sense, want to emancipate from our Father in heaven which is ridiculous. You know, as an analogy, we hear about childhood Hollywood stars emancipating from their God-given parents. And I can't help but see the analogy to the Jews who knew who the Messiah was and they rejected Him. It's crazy, right? All for what? In the name of independence. In the name of arrogance. But we're going to lose our position. Yeah, but God didn't give you that position. I know we made it for ourselves. Aren't we the independent sort? We're self-made men and women, you see. Isn't that the world thing? Oh, you're really smart. You're really athletic. You're really beautiful. You're a self-made person. We'll esteem you highly. The world loves that crap. And that's exactly what it is, crap. There's no such thing as a self-made man. But the world wants you to believe that. And that person who believes that for themselves wants to emancipate from their creator. Does not want to subordinate to the sovereign in the universe. So I was thinking about emancipation and the road to hell. Jews, The Jews are like the child that desires to be emancipated from their God-given parents. It's not about understanding who the authority is. That's known. It's not like a kid doesn't know who the authority, the God-given authority is. It's about not wanting what God wants for you. Hell is where spiritually emancipated children go. <laughs> Sounds funny to say it like that. I hope you get the point. The point I'm trying to make is that these children want that. These children choose for themselves. I want to be emancipated from my Creator the same way that a moronic kid wants to be emancipated from from their God-given parents, because they want to live an independent life in Hollywood, let's say. So arrogance says something like this: quote, you know, I know you created me, God, but I'd prefer to spend eternity separate from you and your authority. I know you created me, but I'd prefer to be separate from you. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? That's the, the creature who wouldn't exist without the Creator saying, yeah, I, yeah, thanks, I guess, but I don't want, you know, can we sever ties? No. It's incredible. It's incredible. Arrogance says, I know you created me, God, but I'd prefer to spend eternity separate from you and your authority. Before God ever allows such a thing, we must always remember one simple fact. Again, sobering truth. Sobering biblical principle on the hardness of the heart. God will never allow a heart to be hardened until it first understands the gospel. Doesn't have to accept it. Can say, I want to be emancipated. But it will understand the gospel. It is the Spirit's ministry to testify about Jesus and His gospel. That's John 15:26. No person will ever be sentenced to hell unless they first tasted the gift and have been enlightened by the Spirit's conviction. Hebrews 6, 4-6 speaks to the person who has both of these things and says, nah, hold your thumb there, go to Hebrews 6, 4 for reference. No person will ever be sentenced to hell unless they first tasted the gift and been enlightened by the Spirit's conviction. There has to be some touch point with God the Holy Spirit's special ministry regarding salvation, or else God would be unjust in sentencing a person forever and ever to the lake of fire. Which should put all of us at ease as evangelists, right? That it's not us that are being rejected, it's them rejecting God the Holy Spirit's special ministry. Hebrews 6.4 For in the case of those who have once been enlightened or once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, guess what? It is worthless and close to being cursed. That means its destiny is forthcoming while still alive on earth. In other words, they may still be alive like the Pharisees were after he denounced them for blaspheming the Spirit. And it ends up being what? Burned. Sentenced to hell, in other words. That's a picture of the person who never really believed. Tasted of the Spirit, tasted of the Word of God, was enlightened to the degree, yes, I do understand what you're saying about the Gospel, but I say, guess what? No. Maybe I'll hang for a little while, maybe I won't. That ends up being burned. In other words, in agriculture... Soil that yields thorns and thistles is useless, and it is marked as such, burned and then left alone. That's what would have made sense to this culture. If a farmer said, I can't do anything with this soil right here, it's filled with thorns and thistles, he would burn it and then leave it. And that would be the end of it. And guess what never occurs there? No fruit. And what have we learned about fruit? A believer bears fruit, an unbeliever doesn't. You shall know them after their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. End of story. Pretty simple, right? It is. This ought to sound very familiar. It is the third case in the parable of the soils up here on the board. And I'm just trying to give you, again, more context. We're not getting into the parables, but I'm I'm teasing you a little bit to show you the import of context. Matthew 13, 22. this is the so-called third case that Jesus laid out in the parable of the soils, the parable of parables. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Unfruitful soil is worthless and burned up. Sentenced to hell, a la Hebrews 6, 8. That's what we know. This is what Jesus was working with. And this is what he was preparing the apostles for. He's saying, you're going to come across all sorts of people when you sow this seed. Some of them are just going to spit it out. Some of them are going to go, hmm, I kind of like it. Some of them are even going to come to church with you until they get their next promotion. And then they're going to be taken away. And you'll never see them again. Why? Because they never received saving faith. So they'll never bear fruit whatsoever in the kingdom. But they tasted it. They were enlightened by it. God the Holy Spirit was right in front with them. I'm thinking of people in my own family right now. It crushes me to think about this. I know they've gotten the gospel. How do I know? Because they've actually sat in, in these seats before. They don't repent. They're going to be burned up. That sucks, right? But that's the way it goes. All right, let's go back to Matthew 12.31. Matthew 12.31. I mean, there's a lot of sobering truth um, that sort of gives us the base context of the Apostles. Matthew 12:31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And then, of course, if we just fast forward a little bit, we've covered all this in the past. Immediately afterwards, we see this change in Jesus' ministry. Go to 13.1. That day, in other words, this is all happening in you know, retrospect, in rapid rapid procession, so to speak. That day, that same day, uh, look at verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. So he was going to use the context. He knew because the apostles were with him when he was saying all this. When this transition happened. So he knew the context that was set before him, and it was perfect for him to tell the parable of the parables. Now, here's where we stop, though, and begin considering the apostles, and here's why. Due to the nature of parables being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. Speaker, which is Jesus. Obviously, the audience, cultural norms, time, place, and circumstance. We've already noted in our lessons that the apostles were given hearing to actually hear the parables. Now, that's pretty important, isn't it? Because if you're deaf, it doesn't matter what anybody's saying. So we already know that the apostles were given hearing to actually hear the parables. But as we know, this is simply the grace of God, not something special that God bestowed on the apostles prior to salvation. In other words, the the apostles didn't show up with special hearing. They weren't born. That's why we don't make big statues of them. They weren't born with, with supernatural hearing. That was a gift given to them. Presumably at or after salvation. In fact, prior to salvation, these 12 apostles would have been deaf as doornails, just like every other person that has ever lived. Up here on the board, Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. We ought to be very encouraged by this. This has been our sort of entree into the apostles. They, they weren't exceptional men. The one thing that the apostles were known to have, not always because they had to learn it, as we're going to see in Scripture, was humility. If there's one thing we can at least point to, there was some baseline of humility. He said, follow me, and what did they do? They followed him. He said, drop your nets and follow me. What did they do? They dropped the nets and followed him. Well, that's a little bit of of humility, is it not? So the one thing that the apostles were known to have is humility, at least to the degree that they would often ask questions, especially Peter, as we'll see. As we'll learn in this series, even humility must be taught, making it yet another gift from God. Humility is the key to the spiritual life, but here's the thing. It's grace upon grace. So even humility must be taught. Let me prove this to you. It must be taught, making it another grace gift from God. This is the amazing thing about God. We really can't claim anything. It's incredible. For example, how were you humbled at salvation? You were taught, you were told, in some way, even nature can do it. God impressed upon you, he taught you that he is sovereign creator and that you're a sinner. Right? So even humility in its base format must be taught and then bestowed on an individual by grace. Do you get it? He said, I made you. You see all this? I made all this too. You feel little yet? I do. You see how imperfect you are? I kind of do. You see how perfect I am? Yep. You want to spend eternity with me? I do. Do you think you're as righteous as me? Then you need a Savior. That's what it means to be taught humility. He impressed upon you the facts about himself. The facts about you're a sinner. You were born depraved. And you needed a Savior. That's how he taught you humility. It was up to you to learn it, accept it, be convicted by it, and don't put it on a timeline. Just know that it happened. But that was all by grace. So even humility in its base format must be taught and then bestowed on an individual by grace. Only an arrogant person, an unteachable person, won't receive said humility. And that was something we learned this past week, asking for help. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible encourages us to ask for help from the Lord? I just thought just now, think of the thief on the cross. Remember me. Will you please remember me? Ask. Ask. God save me. I can't do this. Deliver me. This is ridiculous. I need a Savior. God, can you save me or what? And he says, yeah, sure I can. I've been waiting for it. Ask, you shall receive. That's the beauty of God. But arrogance will never ask. The same person who drives around for four hours don't ask directions, right? It's the same person. Honestly, it's the same thread. It's the same human problem. The humble person asks the Lord for everything. And I don't mean something, I mean everything not just at salvation, but everything thereafter, including your humility. I just prayed on that today. I pray on that all the time. Lord, give me faith. Give me, give me humility. I'm such an ass. Stop, help me stop thinking this way. The stuff that comes across my mind is so foul and so disgraceful. I'm ashamed. And I say, Lord, you're going to have to deliver me from this because I can't control where it's coming from. My flesh is like getting worse. I'm 47. The thing is like a wild beast. It is out of control, right? The only thing that's controlling is the grace of God, is the new nature. But let me tell you something. It's it's a wild man. He wants out. And so I pray for those things. I say, make me humble, whatever it takes. I don't know what it takes because I can't control this thing. It's like the wolf man, right? I can't control him. He's biting, scratching, gnawing. He's crazy. Put some restraints on that thing for me. So I ask, and you know what he does? He helps me out. Next thing you know, I'm I'm good. Receiving grace is a function of prayer. Whether we are praying for ourselves or someone else is on our behalf. For example, we were talking about them asking, the, the apostles being humble enough to ask. Here's a perfect example. Right in the beginning, hey, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? We don't get it. Can you explain it? Absolutely. And he explained it. But they asked, right? Here's an old principle I haven't taught in a while, but certainly pertinent to the apostles and to all of us. Arrogance is unteachable. It just is. The apostles were teachable Jews. The arrogant Jews were not. The Pharisees. Arrogance is unteachable. Difficult thing to manage if you're trying to teach somebody something. Try to teach them a lesson, try to do good by them, and they remain unteachable. It's arrogance. Look at Matthew 13, 11. Then Jesus answered them, To you, why do you speak to them parables? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, (laughs) excuse me, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes otherwise they could see they would see with their eyes hear with their ears and understand with their heart with their heart and return and i would heal them up here in the board who does god give grace to i mean this has been like a broken record from the pulpit god gives grace to the humble the apostles received hearing as a grace gift because they were humble enough to receive it. Beforehand, they were unable to hear, but were available, a.k.a. humble. Now, let me just give you something to drive this home. If I were to stop class right now and say, shh, you hear that? You hear it? And you hear absolutely nothing but I absolutely hear something. Either I've gone crazy, possible, wolfman, or, as was the case with the apostles, God has given me a supernatural ability to hear things that you cannot. Those are your options. Now, if you knew, just think about this, if you knew that it was God who gave me this hearing, and you were humble you'd pray to God to receive the same grace, right? And if you were truly seeking in humility, he'd give it to you just like he gave it to me. But if you just wanted to, you know, hear, because you don't want to be the odd man out, sounds like fun, maybe it sounds like good music. If you just wanted to hear for the sake of possessing something you perceived as a good to have, like the rich young ruler who asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, then God would see your arrogant heart and deny you said grace gift of hearing. And you wouldn't get it, at least not at that point. As the Spirit taught us on Tuesday, it's about availability, not ability. The Lord is not looking for natural abilities, but available hearts. The apostles didn't have this hearing before they were humbled and given grace. The Lord's not looking for natural abilities, but available hearts. Those who are available, humble, will be given ability. You will get the ability, but it's a gift. Allah, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Spiritual praise things to, to, the un, uh, to the natural man are not perceivable. The Lord God opened the apostles' ears to hear. That's Matthew 13.17. Look at verse 16. Matthew 13.16. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. And then he goes on to explain the parable of the parables. The big parable, so to speak. Again, before we jump into the parables, we need to understand the context of Jesus' presentation of them. For starters up here on the board. Uneducated men understood the parables. How? Well, we just talked about that. It wasn't something they came to the table with. God gave them a grace gift of hearing. Jesus' parables are unlocked not by intellect, but by honest pursuit of the truth. The Holy Spirit will reveal said truth to those with ears to hear. Matthew 13:9. The apostles prove this. Now I need to give you a balance statement, so you have to concentrate. Okay, I need you to concentrate on this because I do not want anybody to get goofy. Because I'm gonna keep saying things like, and Scott's gonna keep saying it: the apostles were ordinary. The apostles weren't exceptional. Jesus chose unexceptional men, and look how great they became. Jesus chose unexceptional men, and look how great they became. Jesus, I want something becomes a doctrine. Then people start going in the reverse order. Great men, Jesus chose them, and they were unexceptional. So to be great, you must be unexceptional. Uh Uh-uh. Don't do that. So this is where the balance statement comes in, okay? In other words, get get glean from what the Spirit's trying to teach you correctly. Here's the balance statement. I've got three, I think. The issue of Jesus' choosing the twelve is not that the apostles were unexceptional as compared to the Pharisees and intellectuals, but rather it is to establish that it doesn't matter. That's the key point, that he can use the least of us. Did he choose them? Yes. Was the context of the situation perfectly designed to prove certain things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But let us not reverse engineer this thing and say, you must be unexceptional to be great in the kingdom of God. That would be a lie. So the issue of Jesus' choosing the Twelve is not that the apostles were unexceptional as compared to the Pharisees, the intellectuals, etc. But rather, it is to establish that it doesn't matter. Paul stands as the counterweight in our analysis, proving this same principle but being an intellect, a Pharisee. The point is not that you have to be unexceptional to be so-called great in the kingdom. The point is it doesn't matter. And by choosing unexceptional men right out of the gate, it proved to the intellectuals who dominated the situation that it doesn't matter. You see, Paul had a slightly different ministry, didn't he? If you know anything about the Gentiles, they were all intellectuals. And so he used an intellectual for that context to prove certain things. But do not make doctrine where doctrine doesn't exist. That's what the balance statement is. The point the Spirit's making is very important in keeping your fleshes at bay. He doesn't want anyone to read into all of this talk about the apostles being unexceptional ordinary men the wrong way. Up here on the board, to continue the balance statement, you're no better with no better, quote, chance of receiving grace if you're dumb or smart. The point is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do not make a false doctrine out of any of this. You can have character, faith, and purity regardless of intellect. You can be have a 150 IQ or a 50 IQ. And you can have character, faith, and purity. And be humbled. And accept the gospel. And spread the gospel. doesn't take a whole lot of uh, ingenuity to pick up the seed and sow it. That's the visual. Reach in the bag, throw it out. Reach in the bag, throw it out. So you're no better with no better, quote, chance of receiving grace if you're dumb or smart. The point is that it doesn't matter. Do not make a false doctrine out of any of this. You can have character, faith, and purity regardless of intellect. All the Spirit's been highlighting is the point on the board. And that God will use whomever He desires. And He'll take whatever measures are necessary to gather His own unto Himself. In the case of the Twelve that Jesus called, maybe it was that they needed to be uneducated to stand opposed to the Pharisees because that was perfect at the time. Jesus chose the uneducated to stand in contradiction to the moronic intellects. That's what he chose. He proved the point. In Paul's case, later on, as the apostle to the Gentiles, maybe he called the Jewish intellect so that the intellectual Gentiles of the day were more likely to listen to him. Okay, if I was going to, all right, so let me give you an example, and please don't take this the wrong way, but this is what I'm coming up with. If I was to get a, a, a Buddhist or something, or a Hindu up here, um, to speak about their religion, would you want someone, would you, would you be more open to hear someone who really has it nailed, like the equivalent of, say, a pastor in Christianity? Or would you want to listen to someone who barely knows anything? was not esteemed you're probably more likely to listen to the person with that's knowledgeable that you esteem even right i don't know makes sense to me i mean if you're a snobby gentile and you're all about intellectualism and philosophy and gnosticism and Gnosticism and all these other perversions of truth that require high intellect to gain entry into then maybe God has to use a really, really, really smart person from the other side of the fence just to have a conversation with you. Otherwise, you're not listening. They might just say, I'm not listening to a fisherman. What do you do? Peter, what did you say he was? Simon Peter? And what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a fisherman. Paul could come in, become all things to all men, speak just the same language with all the highfalutin, you called it, Speak very intellectually, intelligently, fluently, all the, all the above. Maybe they give him a hearing. Think about the gospel. Is it simple or complex? It's simple. What did, how did Jesus present it? Very simply. And he presented it to the Jews. It was a fundamental problem. The Jewish leaders were intellectually he used uneducated, simple men with a simple message about the gospel. And he says, go out and spread this truth. Paul, on the other hand, if you read the epistles, they're very complicated. They're very um, logically presented. You have to be, let's face it, reasonably intelligent just to follow his logic. Read Romans when you go home. Seriously, you have to be reasonably intelligent to follow his logic. Does that mean that we're supposed to glean the gospel proper out of that stuff? No. It means that Paul was defending or propositioning again the gospel proper, usually defending against a bunch of intellects. A bunch of against a bunch of smart people who said, "But wait a minute, justification is this way. And what about propitiation and what about reconciliation and expiation and what about this and what about that because we think it's this way and there's no resurrection because of blah 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 and the fishermen from the original 12 would be like what is going on we know Jesus we touched him we lived with him we know read John 1 tonight when you go home we know Jesus read First John 1 it was that simple he was a man he was our Savior. We believed Him. We followed Him. And then we spread the good news. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He went to the cross. He died. He resurrected. And he ascended. Do you believe in Him? Because if you do, you're saved. You believe that He was Him, though. Paul had to deal with a whole nother gang. That's what people mess up, I believe, in the contemporary Christian churches. They go directly to Paul's epistles and they try to glean the, the, the gospel. It can be done, don't get me wrong, but it gets a little bit weird. They try to go to those epistles only for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Wasn't that what Paul was afraid of? I'm afraid that you will be deceived by who? Satan. Of what? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You know, the thing that the 12, well, the original 11, who kept going, ended up, and then the other ones added, ended up spreading. The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The gospel was not complicated. Jesus did not present the complicated gospel. He did not present a complicated way to salvation. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father but through me. Amen. Done. Not complicated. Paul was very complicated in his ministry. Why? Because complicating times, you're ready for context? Complicating times called for complicating measures. Complex times called for complex discussions. But, wait a minute. But the gospel's not complicated. I know. I know. Paul said, I'll become all things to all men to what? Save some. So here's what Paul had to do. He had to do what I have to do many times. He had to go into the the bowels of intellectualism. And talk to a bunch of educated morons. You know, like Americans. A bunch of educated idiots. And dispel a bunch of hack reasons. And a bunch of perversions on the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. No, that is not how you're justified. You're justified by faith. And God gives faith oh, we were thinking we were justified by X, Y, and Z and doing this and that and believing this and, you know, we were the only ones, we had the only way in, that was Gnosticism. They made so many weird perversions regarding salvation. And here's the thing. Some of it was infused with truth. But a little leaven leavens a whole lump. They would use just, all right, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a Christian, and you say, there is no flipping way. There's, I had one person argue with me. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Then you're not a Christian. All right, so then you're not a believer. But let's just say Christian equals believer. Why are you calling yourself a Christian then? You don't even believe the truth. See, they infused. They said, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. You see? This is where one belief is not the same as another. There's lots of people who say, I believe in Jesus Christ. But their their doctrines are all messed up regarding the gospel. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I just don't think he's the only way. What do you mean? Do you know that he said I'm the only way? Nobody comes to the father but through me? Either you think he's a liar or you don't. You can't have both. They want another Jesus from another spirit. And guess what most of us do? We tolerate it beautifully, just like Paul said to the Corinthians. This is the battle that I fight. I'm much more like Paul, frankly. Why? Because I was raised in an intellectual society. So I have to fight all these ridiculous arguments about Christianity proper and how the gospel is this and the gospel is that and it's this and it's that and it's this and Paul had a gospel and Jesus had a gospel and there's this dispensation and that dispensation. Oh my God! This is the battle that I have to fight. And then you're listening to me, so guess what? He must think you have a battle to fight along the same lines. Because you have intellectual friends. You have uh, perverted friends. You have uh, beautiful friends. You have athletic friends. You have all kinds of people that are highly esteemed. You have business buddies that are highly esteemed and wealthy and rich. And all these things that the world just like, oh, this is amazing. And you're supposed to deal with them. And you're supposed to bring the gospel to them. Well, you can't go to them. They're not even going to listen to a fisherman. I hope you know what I mean by that. Some of you need to realize that that's what he's been doing. You know the gospel's simple. You know it's straightforward. You know what it is. You know it's about Jesus Christ. You know all the things you learned over the last year and a half. But they don't. And so you're going to have to have these ridiculous conversations with people. Anyways. In the case of the Twelve, and I've got to quit. I'm already two minutes over. I'll leave you with this. In the case of the Twelve that Jesus called, maybe it was that they needed to be uneducated, quote-unquote, to stand opposed to the Pharisees because that was perfect at the time. And in Paul's case, later on, as the apostle to the Gentiles, maybe he called the Jewish intellect so that the intellectual Gentiles of the day were more likely to listen to him. God only knows all the reasons but we might observe the following, and then I'll I promise I'm going to let you go. They're just called from different places. Jesus called the original 12 apostles, the so-called uneducated, and they followed him. However, with Paul, the intellect, he had to knock them down. What do you see there? If they're the leaders of the church, and they're the ones going out and trying to propagate the church, and their experiences are such, and they're able to empathize with a certain crowd of people, don't you think he called them a certain way? Don't you think he called you a certain way? Don't you think he gave you, you know, your IQ, your abilities, your whatever it is that you, you know, he gave you the condition in which he called you. Don't you think he gave you those things specifically for a reason? To have certain conversations? doesn't matter if you're the so-called uneducated one or the highly intellectual one like paul we're all on the continuum right we're all in this continuum and somewhere our lives fall in somewhere the context of our lives comes across different soils but it's always the gospel and it's always simple our whole reason for living is to spread the word to spread the good news about jesus christ to reveal to a lost world how they're saved that's it And if you want to be mature, you get really good at that. You get really good. That's how you get mature. You lose all the garbage. You lose all the religions. That's how you mature. Maturing actually means simplifying. I only knew that 20 years ago. Right? But that's what, you know, that's what we do. So, anyways, we're out of time. Let's bow Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege of studying your Word here this evening. Thank you for keeping us humble. Thank you for teaching us what humility truly is. Thank you for teaching us as well that it's all done by grace, motivated by your love, Father. What a what a privilege this is, Father, just to know the truth and be set free by it. Thank you so much. We ask for traveling mercies as we go forth. And Tend to this great commission you've given us. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.